because we're all trying to save ourselves, but we don't understand that the way to save ourselves is to understand we're all we got, all of us. Super Givers, I'm excited for you to spend some time today with Marpeza Allen of Aurora, Colorado. She's a woman of many titles, but at the heart of it, she's an advocate and a leader. And our conversation today is very much about the intersection of oppression and community leadership. Plus, if you have a specific interest in black maternal health, Marpeza's lens is partly through her work as an advocate for moms of disadvantaged groups navigating the power of the Western medical world. One quick production note, you'll hear some noise towards the middle and end of this interview. That was me typing notes while listening and the lesson learned that I will do that on pen and paper from now on. Also to acknowledge, you'll hear Marpesa speak about the assumption that white people aren't listening. And I'm open to the understanding the impact of my trying to take notes during an interview. Um, just something to be aware of in the, in the context of everything we discussed today. This is the Super Givers Podcast. How would you like people who are learning about you for the first time to see you in this interview context? I just had a goal setting session with my daughter on New Year's Eve. And so the exercise was in two minutes. What is my mission statement? And similar to what you were asking is how do I want to show up in the world? And the words that came up for me are harmony, love, peace, rhythmic, creative, um, funny. And I think I would have to say that there are um, things in my life that I want people to remember me as a walking vignette. And so I just love people and um, I want people to know that I'm just here to bounce around and see what, what are the needs and how I can be a part of making change. And as we spoke about a second ago in, in setting this up, you are, you are such a part of a variety of change in the greater Denver area, it sounds like, that we'll be getting into lots of different facets of the themes that I like to explore on the Supergivers podcast around leadership and um, oppression, social dynamics, and systemic change. So I'd love to know just what you're most excited to share about yourself off the, off the bat. What are you up to and what are you like really jazzed about right in the moment? I am jazzed about sharing how I really discovered tapping into my purpose. And not only is it something that drives me every day, but it also is, I've been able to support myself that in, in, in addition to that. And I believe I have somewhat of a formula for other people to begin to exercise that for themselves and tap into that. And so what I am most excited about in summary is pretty much this is how I did it because I was authentic to myself and what I care about mm -hmm. and what's a pain point for me and that we all have that and can be our own answer to the problem that we are experiencing. It's such a powerful message um, coming from you and your development and, you know, wearing at least two target statuses, right? Um, mm -hmm. Is it fair to say you're a, a black woman identified person and maybe even other target statuses, right? That we haven't mentioned. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that okay to mention by the way? All of that. Yes. Yeah. Since we're not on video. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So how do, you know, marginalized populations that you work with receive that encouragement and what are you considering in like this sense of, Hey, you can be centered. You can be empowered as this, no, no matter your challenges. Here in particularly the greater um, Denver metro area, there are so many nonprofit organizations that are that are doing great work and are wanting to forge here in the next um, this next decade. I do see there being more um, interest and collaboration and not wanting to be silos. And so what I have found is 
there are organizations that are sponsoring other organizations if it has to do with homelessness, who is doing, um, who are the best people that can help with the housing, who can feed um, families as well as give them information on, um, talk to them about climate control in their environment. So I do see a lot of more cross um, organizational collaboration. I think I might've made that up, that word, but um, I do. I, I love seeing that. And um, I think that's why it's easy for me to put on so many hats is because there are those opportunities and there's, there's several different people in the room that can um, support the communities. The issue, however, is we could do a lot better in listening and not just assuming that it's about them not being able to afford housing. Maybe it's because they have a disability. Maybe it's because they have a felony. Um, so really listening for what is the root, root cause, not just assuming that um, because they have mental health issues that they're on disability or, you know, just it's time to fine tune our ear and see what it is they believe they're the solution to for their own lives. So I think that's where we need to go in terms of um, particularly in Denver. And that really, to me, presumes that people are really doing their best and are out to improve themselves. Does that seem fair to say? Absolutely. Like if we're really listening, we're really, what I hear you saying is you're really listening for the, the piece of genuine interest in, in improving circumstance. I mean, yeah, I think that um, <laughs> there are so many people moving to Denver and they they're coming with the American dream. I think it's easy for them to see themselves here because of the Rocky Mountains and because we have clean air and we have um, on paper a beautiful canvas of what it means to have a quality um, a quality life. People want to raise their kids here. Um, there's quote unquote safe neighborhoods, but it's interesting because there's a lot of policies that are um, backbite and are undercutting to what people believe that this this state really represents. There is um, it's hyper white. <laughs> yeah. So when you know when even white people that are coming from Atlanta or um, people that are coming from a lot more diverse areas, they're shocked too. And so it's, it's something that we need to address full force on because people are suffering. They're suffering from not having a place to live. And then when they aren't able to find a place to live, they're getting um, criminalized for sleeping in parks. They are, um, you know, struggling, we're struggling with um, pharmaceutical drugs and, and addictions there, um, domestic violence. I mean, the list goes on and on. What's unfortunate is that we like to continue to act and put our best foot forward and try and sweep under the rug things that really can make a difference and a dent in making the state better. Yeah. And what I find, you know, so critical, I'm curious about your, your perception on this is it seems that the, you know, the advantage folks in power often have a different narrative about people who are trying to lift them up through social services or government funded services that they can just do so if they weren't, if they tried harder or if they cared more or if they um, weren't so lazy or whatever the narrative is. Right. And it sounds like you're suggesting that there's a different narrative and it's, it's, of course it's not, you know, all or nothing, but you're seeing it from a different lens. Um, and I don't know that we're going to, you know, go too far down this, but I want to know how that, you know, how that informs, like, how do you try to create a bridge to those, two, between those two narratives? You know, honestly, I think a part of it was natural because um, I'm from, originally I'm from Aurora, Colorado. So I had to put that out there. Um, yes, I'm from the Denver metro area, but I love being from Aurora because we have, 130 plus languages represented 
And so in my high school, it was so diverse, socioeconomically, race, um, uh, you know, just around uh, sexual orientation, all of those things. And so, you know, graduating from such a diverse school and leaving such a diverse city, and then I moved to Washington, D.C., where, you know, I was Chocolate City. <laughs> and so, um, well, it, it was a lot more chocolate when I was there. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, gentrification forces you to figure out what is it within you that um, is triggering? Why won't I? Uh, what is bothering me about um, when white people say certain things to me or you know, what is bothering me about, um, you know, having detained, um, children being detained in our detention facility here in Aurora. Mm -hmm. And so you're forced to think about these things. And so I have always been vocal. I speak my mind all the time for good or for, um, worse. Mm -hmm. And so, I find myself in circles where that's helpful and I find myself in circles where it's not, but it, it doesn't make me stop. And so when people see that, I think they're like, yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned conviction. Yes. Passion, conviction. And it's what keeps me up at night when I hear, um, when I get a phone call and, um, you know, someone wants to commit suicide that I know and I love and, you know, the police are going to be extremely helpful. Um, it's, it's, mm, there's just so much drama. I think that we just don't want to acknowledge because we're all trying to save ourselves, but we don't understand that the way to save ourselves is to understand we're all we got, all of us. When you're speaking about using your voice, I wondered if there has been a time when you were a little uncertain about how it would go, um, but it required some boldness and you spoke up. Has there been a time when that using your voice created some surprisingly positive outcome? Hmm. And I wasn't sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it just, you could, you could sense the risk. Oh yeah. Let's see. There's so many, but I think that, One that I can think of this past summer was, oh, I have two. But one that I can think of this past summer, we went to a, um, like a neonatal uh, convention for primarily uh, professional medical staff or whatever. And so um, I went with my two business partners. Obviously, I'm a, a birth worker, so I don't have a PhD or um, not a nurse practitioner, but I do understand being a mother. And so when I walk into the room, I'm one of three black faces in a pool of white women and black men. And they have a whole presenter talking about the black infant mortality rate. So to me, I'm thinking like, I feel like they're exploring a museum of black womanhood without even having real representation of what it's like. And so um, thankfully I was pregnant (laughs) during the summer. Hmm. And so I just, I had questions. And so um, already I try and explain to, to, my my white allies and even with other black women that can identify with the fact that when you walk into a room and it's majority white our blood pressure goes up our palms are sweaty um we're already clued into who's rolling their eyes or who's who we feel is pretentious and so i just was like you know what marpez you need to get up and you need to ask um real legit questions about our experience. And so, you know, I've been, I've been just on this campaign of it's yeah, more access and all of that is great, but they're not kind when we go into the doctor's office. 
they're rude. They want to, you know, move on to the next person. They assume that I'm going to have a baby with a low birth weight. They like to pick and prod. They assume I have diabetes. They, they want to, you know, see what kind of domestic violence relationship I am or how many baby dads I have. And so, yeah, all of that is just, we're all bringing that to the table. And so I stood up. I don't even remember what my question was, but to be honest, the fact that I would ask my question is bold enough. Yeah. And um, I, I will continue to do that, especially in spaces like that, because it's like, how are you going to be in my house? And I didn't even know you were in my house hmm. studying all of this. Hmm. And so you don't have the answers. You can be an ally, but allies walk beside or behind. And so there needs to be a lot more black women in here discussing with you how you can collaborate with us. Awesome. Yeah. And even the fact that you stood up in that situation probably with, changed the dynamic. Right. With a whole belly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is a great opportunity to talk more about black maternal health. Yeah. And I don't, I want to maintain the, the energy of the thread that you've got open here. So give you a, your choice here. Where do you want to take it? I, I was really interested in at least two pathways. One is the intersectionality of race and reproductive rights. And part of that could be this question that you've already started to answer, which is what do black moms or moms to be have to consider that advantaged populations don't? I'd like to take the, the latter. Okay. Yeah. Um, because that's my experience, right? So um, always, always growing up, um, I grew up around um, uh, two parents in the household. My dad's a pastor. My mom's an opera singer, really doesn't have to work. Um, my grandfathers were both in the military. One also was a boxer and loved reading the Bible all day. <laughs> Once he retired, and then my other grandfather um, was a gun instructor, and so his job was to time um, time his um, his students to hurry up and finish assembling that gun fast enough. So, with that being said, I think that that is that being my legacy. Um, I knew I was going to be a strong mom. I knew I'm going to be a straight shooter. I know I'm a fighter. and But at the same time, I have a soft spirit like my mother, um, a nurturing spirit like both of my grandmothers who were nurses. So I'm assuming that growing up, because I'm seeing all of those things, I had no idea the countless assaults that my entire family um, had had before me and also because they had me. Um, you really have to pay the cost to be the boss, to be a black parent. And so um, once I got married, I got married at 23. I knew right away, even before I wanted to go, like Howard was my dream school. and But that was not the most important thing for me. When I thought about growing up and people asked me what did I want to be, I wanted to be a mom. In fact, I wanted to be a mom originally with 12 kids. Then it went down to six kids. and But honestly, I think four kids is like 12 kids. So I'm going to stop at four. <laughs> but if you don't mind me taking you down this journey of being a 23-year-old who didn't finish um, at her first um, dream school because I had a manic episode. And so then I realized, oh, I have mental health concerns. I never took ownership of it as that's who I am. And so I was like, well, I'm still going to have kids. And so I didn't know that I needed support because I thought I, I have it. I'm strong. My grandma did. My mom did. My grandma had five kids. You know, um, all those things in my mind, I was like, I got it. I got it. I got it. Which is that, um, that black super woman um, mentality that we need to um, let go of because it's killing us. So after I had my three kids, I went through a tumultuous divorce, obviously because of my mental health, but also because I didn't know what it was like to be a mom. I didn't really know how to ask for help. And then even in our communities, we're supposed to be strong. Um, 
And then um, I live in a very hyper white community. (laughs) So this is all in Aurora. This is all in Denver. And then years, years later, my son, my youngest son is eight. It wasn't until he was six or two years ago that I realized that I was a survivor because the black maternal and infant mortality rate here in the state of Colorado is so disturbing. We, and I say we, we are three times more likely than white women to die. We're not taking our kids home or their kids, the babies are not walking out with or being carried out with their mothers. Mm. So when you tell white people these these statistics, I know they're not listening and, or like, that's my assumption. I need things white explained. And so that is what's so important for me is identifying true allies that understand and are able to push it forward in the communities that are perpetuating um, the situation. And so the way that I've been able to do that is one, let women know, all women, that they have choices in how they deliver their babies, that they can trust your body, that you can push back, that you can ask questions, you can ask for another doctor. If you don't like that nurse, tell them not to walk in your room anymore. Um, The dynamics of your room. And you need someone who can help you, well, one, who can hold space for you, but help implement the things that you desire to bring your child into the world, which is more than likely one of the most important things you'll ever do in your life. And so, I mean, I I don't have any choice, I feel like, than to um, be the straight shooter, than the one to um, get up and... Um, just explain to a nurse, she doesn't want you in here right now. I think you're being extremely um, rough with her. The One of the things that we talk about a lot is um, in the black community, especially for black women, is our doctors and our medical professionals think we can take, we have high tolerances for pain. And that's not true. We have a fear of speaking up. And so... It's, it's definitely a systematic. We've, we've been inflicted with physical pain the entire time we've been on this, in this country, yeah. when we were transported in this country. And so it has spilled over mm-hmm. into um, the treatment of our, our Latino siblings and our LGBTQ siblings and um, our, our, um, our disabled siblings and our Muslim siblings. And what we've lost is the fact that we're all related. And so as Martin Luther King talks about is, you know, if we're, if there is, um, if there is a threat to anyone, it's a threat to everyone. And so that's what we need to understand as our humanity. And I think it is very tough to still address the fact that there is systematic um, oppression that um, didn't even start in this country. It started the moment they were forging to this country and figure out who they're going to bring and who's going to stay and how are they going to make profit and how are they going to maintain power? Yeah, absolutely. So on, on one video, I heard you speak about the roots of, at the time would have been like African-American breastfeeding, slave, slave breastfeeding practices. Yes. That is this some of what you're referring to? I know you're talking about a, a lot of this, but is that an example of what you're referring to about oppression that is now coming through the medical system, which is already in power in that moment of birth, regardless of what population women? This is a common thing across women, right? That I hear it's really hard to find your voice mm-hmm. in the face of the power of the medical establishment. <clears throat> and so can you talk a little bit more about, about what you'd love people to, to be educated on in terms of these, not necessarily intentional, but rippled layers of oppression that are causing some of these, these astronomical rates of death and um, challenge. 
man, I had to breathe for a minute because I'm like, <laughs> this time I'm like, what angle do I want to go from? Yeah, please. <laughs> um, yeah, let's start at bre- uh, breastfeeding. Um, again, I grew up seeing my mother pictures of my mom breastfeeding my sister and I. And then I didn't realize that um, I didn't realize that that is something that um, a lot of black mothers don't do for whatever reason, right? But it is very inequitable in terms of access and education as to why it's so important. And then I started thinking about why is that? And because one, I went to HBCU and was very intentional about taking um, black studies classes and um, African history classes, I started to make these connections. And so let's start with rape culture. Um, I love hip hop music. I love rap. I love any, I mean, it doesn't matter to me. I love the art form because it's folk music to me. And we like to pinpoint rap and hip hop as being misogynistic and the ones who perpetuate, perpetuate rape. And that's not true. It started um, on plantations where slave masters were not only raping black um, women, slaves, but also they're delivering these babies and then are breastfeeding these babies in addition to their the families of their um, the, the progeny of their children and so children rather so at the expense of watching our own children die and so it is just so interesting to me how intentional or not um, we're led to believe that the black family does not love one another that we don't um, we're distant we don't care. Um, and that's absolutely true, I think, in, in the respect of that there's self-hatred. But we've been used. We've been used to um, pass along our nutrition to, um, to white families that now have um, a huge gap in wealth between Black and um, our white siblings, even. And so... For me, I can't create this huge picture in one workshop or one training um, or even try and bring it to a nurse during a delivery. It has to be in the back of my mind on how can I disrupt that pattern? How can I drop this knowledge when it's appropriate or not appropriate, but I still need to disrupt what's happening? Let me express to you um, why this is so important for black families. And so we do live in two different worlds is my, um, is my belief. And, um, it doesn't stop me from having any, um, ill will. It's just that we are dealt a different hand and it is, I think it's very, um, extremely patronizing to say pull yourself up from the bootstraps when um we created the boots <laughs> <laughs> so i'll leave it there mm-hmm. where does it feel like you want to take this from here i have a theory that okay. i that i just came up with um last night in fact because i'm starting well this year for me is my goal is to become more polished. And I know we mentioned offline that um, there are times where my tongue, well, we talked about it too on here, but my tongue can be divisive Hmm. and it can also be disruptive and there's a difference. But what do I do when I'm triggered? How am I going to use my words? Can I um, transmute my triggers into being effective and heard, or am I just going to cut people at their knees? And that is not my intention. Um, But sometimes I want them to feel how we feel, (laughs) Um, but it's not productive. And they, they're with privilege. 
you can turn, you can check in and you can check out. And so I just don't have that um, privilege, but it is a privilege to be able to like be art, art, um, what do they say? Um, when you speak well, um, and it's a great, yes, thank you. Um, I can't stand when people say I'm articulate because mm. um, I come from a legacy of, of Zora Neely Hurston and Toni Morrison and Langston Hughes. Of course we're articulate. Um, but I believe that the root of the system was created when there was a pursuit to um, obtain and keep power and profit. And it did not matter how they were going to uh, dice it. But the fact of the matter is the first person to the flag wins. And so um, one, uh, Europe breaking off to come to America, they quote unquote discover Africa um, they identify Africans who can help them identify um, people so that they can maintain their power and profit. Then, um, you know, pretty much trick them off to America. When they get to America, they also see that they've discovered quote unquote natives that now we need to rank them somewhere so that we can maintain power and our profit by dicing up that. And then you know, we'll, we'll make sure that we incorporate the Chinese and the Japanese and how, where are they going to fit? And so now we need to create a system that, that really keeps us in power, makes them think they have a little bit of power. They can get a little bit of profit, but we'll keep profit. And with that started came the inferiority complex and the superiority complex. And this is, um, you know, my, my race is more, um, is stronger than yours or you're weak minded or we're physically more fit. And so we all have red blood that and race is a social construct that is so superficial and made up, but it has us believing to the point that we're killing each other throughout the world. And so, um, I, I don't think that's a popular theory that I came up with, particularly in my community, um, that I would even give um, Europeans the benefit of the doubt that it really was just about um, power and profit and not so much about them hating the African or hating the Native American. Um, or maybe that's just my way of coping um, and trying to reframe history and, and just saying like, of course I would want to maintain my power and profit as well. Um, so I'm still sitting with that, but I, you know, I just, I thought, well, let me throw that noodle on the wall while I'm talking to you. <laughs> well, I'd love your input on the idea that um, another one of my guests who, who studies um, kind of like works with the healing from whiteness as a construct would suggest that, whiteness was a construct that was formed along with the formation of the colonialized Euro America. Um, mm -hmm. So it's interesting as I hear you speak, it's like there was, there was such a, there was a partnering of this superiority and inferiority that as whiteness was formed and the, that fed the superiority perhaps of that construct, it also allowed for the polarization of disempowering, through these other constructs that, like you said, may not have even been that conscious at the time. Who knows, right? Yeah. But either way, they are strongly conscious constructs that we wrestle with today. In the last 500 years, here we are today, 2020. Mm -hmm. What are the opportunities for progress? If you were like encouraging or championing people in, in ally roles as well as in disadvantaged roles, yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I am hopeful and optimistic <laughs> still. Um, okay, my my, I always go back to my elders. I love my elders. I love mm. my grandparents. I even even it doesn't matter what race, 
because I look at them and say, man, I, I just want to survive like you. How did you do it? Mm-hmm. How did you thrive? And so um, my grandmother is 101 <laughs> and she is from Detroit, Michigan. So here again, you, I'm not afraid to say nothing to nobody. <laughs> do it. Please. <laughs> uh, because of her, you know what I mean? So I will tell my grandma, you know, um, I will talk to her about um, racial profiling, right? And she legit looks at me and rolls her eyes like, is that it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's perspective um we have come a long way and so that's what we do not need to forget dave chappelle just recently i love dave chappelle first of all but he he just received the mark twain award and is in the kennedy center in his own hometown and he was saying how his mother um, he, he always knew what a griot is and that's someone who tells the story. Mm-hmm. And so that is in our tradition, mm-hmm. oral tradition. And we just need to maintain the fact that when our elders pass, don't forget how far we've come. Mm. Yes, there will be setbacks. But when I, you know, tell my grandma, you know, um, you know, any injustice that I think was discriminatory at my job. And she just looks at me like I started working when I was nine years old for like three cents at cleaning some white family's house. Like, do not talk to me about going to a court to talk about discrimination. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we have, I think, just keeping record of how far we've come and applauding ourselves when we made a little bit of progress. I think a little bit of progress for me in the past week was being able to be in a part of two cohorts now. One is called The Giving Project with Chinook. Mm-hmm. And Chinook is a uh, social justice philanthropy cohort. We are raising money and going to move money into organizations that are not typically funded um, because that is also a, a, a world that is managed by, um, you know, mostly white women <laughs> in nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, honestly, nonprofit looks a lot like Congress. And a lot like a lot of our um, governing infrastructures throughout the nation, it just does not um, represent us as much. So um, organizations that promote Black Lives Matter and um, um, DACA students or um, refugees or um, LGBTQ, um, we want to put our money there because where you put your money is what you what you're prioritizing what you believe in absolutely that's the one thing um i hope to raise lots of money so i i don't have a problem talking about money either Mm. um because it's energy and it's it shows really what we value and so the next um cohort that i'm a part of is through the ame church which is the african methodist episcopal church which is the original um african denomination and so um, Christian domination. And so I am a part of a race talk university and there's 110 um, men and women people in the um, cohort and it is hugely white. And can I tell you how amazing that is? (laughs) On the flip side, that in this, I keep bringing up Colorado is so hyper white, right? But for there to be that many white people now embracing the fact that we need to, they need to break their rank um, and figure out because this is the worst they've ever felt it in their bones Mm -hmm. that we all have um, some level of diversity fatigue. This includes our police. This includes our judges. This includes, I think we all are trying to figure out how to get out of this. And I think of Meghan Markle and um, Prince Harry, Princess Markle and Prince Harry, Um, Meghan. Anyway, um, 
how amazing that they decide to leave uh, the UK and step out of their royalty, their agency and royalty because of the level of racism and bigotry they've experienced Mm. to cover and protect their own child who is going to um, birth a whole new generation of um, powerful, powerful kids because their parents had a conviction. And so I thought about it as I'm reading all of these articles that uh, really have no idea what it must be like to be them. Um, And then I think of Princess Diana, who really started, this is her seed, so it's not really a surprise. But they are on two different sides of slavery and colonialism. That, to me, is the ultimate definition of love. And I see it that way because I've put in the work in terms of my education but I honestly believe that as we continue this and we, we've seen what's happening, that we're going to be able to catch up. And there's going to be allies that also see it and be able to break rank and be beside us and behind us and allow us to really create and observe how things can be different. And can I just make one more practical way? <laughs> Please. Um. I just watched this TED talk that had been around for three years now, four years, almost four years, but just addressing a Latina ally, addressing um, for black women this this issue that we are dying um, when giving our birth, giving birth, a baby do have low birth weight. Um, you know, all, all of these things, as I mentioned, that are afflicting in, um, us up until labor. Um, But it it was simply a different, um, a different um, presentation and model of how to care for black mothers. It didn't look like a doctor's office. You spoke to them as if they were your friends. You built relationships with the staff. All of the staff are getting to know you and talk to you. And you get to um, check your own baby's birth weight and check your weight and log your own things. And this model exists. I don't know why it doesn't exist overall. Um, But in delivering my last baby piece, I had already been a doula. I said, I'm going to make a change. I'm not delivering in a hospital. No, not to a hospital, but I've had to do a lot of bullying in my life. Um, help, you know, with the labor process with mothers. But I know that that model exists because I've experienced it. Unfortunately, it is an all-white staff, and it's across the street from the hospital that I delivered my other children in. It is under the same hospital. So this is the first hospital birth center. Across the street is the other hospital, and I've delivered my first three there. Worlds different. Worlds different. Mm. Worlds different. I didn't have not one um, monitor hooked up to me, not one cervical uh, exam unless I requested it. I could have whoever I want in my room, whenever I want in my room, food in my room, whenever I want to eat, a pool birth, um, childbirth classes, centering classes where I'm, you know, with other moms. Um, and even with all that, because I live in a hyper white state, I'm not, un- I'm not comfortable being around other moms. Um, and I have to be very well with myself, but this model exists. Now, what if we started you know, moving that into Aurora and we move that into Commerce City and we move that into, um, shoot, Park Hill in the east side and, you know, areas where we are and we want to thrive. And so I see the promised land (laughs) (laughs) and it has to be from the cradle to the grave. Our kids do not need to be locked up. They do not need to always be in special education. They um, they do need to be fed with uh, healthy and clean and um, green foods. 
All of these things should be available to all of us, all of our children, um, all the way to when they're elders. And so that is the type of griot I plan on being is I remember when hospitals used to, I remember when schools used to, um, mm-hmm. I remember when schools used to not be safe. I remember when mosques used to not be safe. I remember when churches used to not be safe. Um, that's possible. It's truly possible. And so it's about all of us honestly breaking rank. Marpeza, who are the leaders in the world today that you most admire? Oh my goodness, most. Um, well, Toni Morrison was um, honestly, before she passed, um, I wish she was my grandma. I think that I think a lot like, you know, just unorthodox like like she did. Um, so she gave me life. Toni Morrison, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, Cornel West is the type of mentor that I have in the fact that he, he forces me to have to reach to understand what he's saying. And I need that because not all the time it's cool to, you know, have dialogue with people and you can follow what they're saying. But I'll read Cornell West and I'm Dr. Cornell West and I'm like, I gotta look up this word. What's xenophobia? Hmm. Um, you know, I I still need to be pushed and challenged. Um Che Guevara, um, Nelson Mandela, Stephen Biko, um, uh, Haile Selassie, um, Alice Walker, Zora Neely Hurston, Langston Hughes, um, uh, gosh, John Coltrane, Billy Holiday. Mm. Uh, <laughs> like, I just could go on and on. Um, Thelonious Monk, um, Martin Luther King, Mar- Malcolm X, Betty Shabazz. Um, I mean, their whole lineage. I, I think that there's just so many. Um, and not just Black. I, I think of, because I talk about um, vignettes a lot, is um, the house on Mango Street. And that's by um, Cisneros. Mm-hmm. I love that book. I love that book because from a Latina perspective in America, it opened up my idea, I, my life in terms of that. I it it gave me a model of how to look at my life as a as a young black girl. Um, and so it is important for us to cross culturally understand one another. Um, oh man, I, I could go on and on about people that I, um, I just respect and I love and I appreciate for just existing here on this planet. Dave Chappelle. (laughs) (laughs) How about this? Let's, let's end with this. That's a, that's a wonderful list. And I really appreciate you sharing about it. If you mentioned a while back that, one of your assumptions, at least in certain context with white people, is that they're not listening, I think you said. Yeah. And so let's say if you had the last 30 to 60 seconds of the interview here, if you had a potential ally's undivided attention, what would you want to them to hear? Hmm. You did say you were going to stop me. Um, it's so simple, but, um, there is a proverb or it's a psalm, um, that says, if you seek love, love, you will seek. Um, and so let's examine for all of us what love really means. And um, love is unconditional. God is love. Um, So let's deconstruct love. And I think once we deconstruct love, we are um, creating the world that we want to see. And that is going to be thriving for all of us. 
Well, Marpesa, thank you so much for sharing about your life and your vantage point and your experience and your vision for the future. Um, and for all the great work you're doing out there, hope you keep it up. If somebody wants to support you directly, what's the best way to do that? Um, best way is my email, actually. And it's um, M-A-R-P-E-S-S-A-A-L-L-E-N at gmail.com. If you're listening, you can check the production notes of this episode and we'll post any links that Marpeza passes along, including the social media or otherwise. Um, and is there an exact type of help that's most useful right now in what you're building? Oh, money. And I know, I know how to move your money. There's so many, um, there's so many organizations that I represent and it's, it's one of the things that, um, I, I think I have a gift in is just philanthropy. And so I will be setting up my own website with my name and different organizations for you to just directly give to, um, because we just need to start moving money that, um, is, is really working and is progressive for where we're trying to go in our new world. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Find out more about Marpeza's work at any of the links posted in the notes from this episode. I'll leave you with the Supergiver's leadership question of the day. In hearing about the realities of black maternal health, where in your world do you trust a system without question? Assuming you could still see that system as well-intentioned, where could you get curious about its room to become more oppression-informed? This has been the Supergiver's podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. If you like what you're hearing and would like to support the show, you can do so with one of three simple actions. You can write a five-star review on iTunes, you can tell a friend about the show, or you can subscribe and listen to another episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks for listening.